the Father's love and our relationships, the overflow from the relationship within the Trinity, the overflow of the Father's love. I was teaching a group of young Chinese Americans, and I spent my time talking about the Trinity all through the weekend. And then on Sunday morning, we had a question and answer time. And this young lady who was a senior in high school put up her hand, and she obviously was raised in the United States because the traditional Chinese, the mainland Chinese, would never ask a question like she asked. Shows the influence of being in America. She comes out with, I have been listening to you all week, or all the weekend. Why is it significant that we would, should understand the Trinity? Now, again, if you understand Chinese culture, you never, never question the teacher. But she's been Americanized, which means you question everything the teacher has to say. <laughs> and he did not say that with joy. <laughs> Now, the Chinese basically have about 200 family names, and that's it. So there's about 200 million Wongs, Chinese, and a common Chinese name is Yu. Why Yu? And in the providence of God, this young gal's family name was Yu. And so I thought I would take revenge on her for her question. <laughs> and I said, okay, your name is you. And also you know in English that you, Y-O-U, sounds like your family name, you. What if I went to your home and stood out in the street and yelled, hey you, come out here. And the father of the home comes out. And he says politely, because he's Chinese, what do you want? And I say, I want to talk to a you. And he says, which one? And I say, it doesn't matter. Father you, mother you, daughter you, your dog you. I don't care about which you it is, just any you will do. Well, that's how we treat the doctrine of the Trinity. Any you will do. But you cannot have a personal relationship with an amorphous, foggy God. The clearer understanding we have, the more our hearts will be touched with how thoughtful the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been relating to us. We're going to go over to 1 John 4 to emphasize the Father's love. 
1 John 4 in the Bible is the chapter that mentions agape love the most or the word love the most. Love occurs in chapter 4 30 times in different forms. The term beloved or agape toy, that's how it's pronounced, three times. Love, the verb agapao, is mentioned 15 times, and agape, love, is mentioned 12 times. And the reference of the act of loving is always directly in this chapter related to the Father. The term God occurs repeatedly, but we know it's referring to the Father because in two verses it says God gave his Son. So that is referencing God the Father who gave his Son. Then this is my translation, starting in verse 7, which is the depth of that section that involves love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is directly from God. And everyone who is continually loving, everyone who loves, but is actually continually loving, is born of God. And personally knows God. It uses the Greek verb for a personal relationship. The New Testament assumption is, if you know God the Father, you will love other people. Because it will liberate the heart so that our self-absorption fades away and our eyes are opened to see the rest of the world as God sees it. And it assumes that if we personally know God, we're granted the capacity to respond the way God responds to people. The one who does not love does not personally know God. For the God, now it's referring to God the Father. In theology classes, they use this as a proof text that the Trinity, one of the characteristics of the Trinity, is love. And they'll give that proof text. But what's obscured by the proof text is that this is personally emphasizing God the Father. That the essence of God the Father is love. The central characteristic of the Trinitarian God. The members of the Trinity love each other they have a passionate delight for one another. They're not going around saying, I choose to love you today. They have this passionate enjoyment of one another eternally. And that love is then poured out upon us by the Father. Now I want to slow down and spend some time to talk about what is agape love. What, it, what is love when it comes to the Bible? This is very important because I would say it's almost close to heresy to say that love is an act of the will. 
Because love in the Bible is a spontaneous delight for another person or persons, and the will becomes enslaved to that delight. It's not love follows the will. It's the will follows love. In John 3.16, where it says, God so loved the world, about four verses later, it talks about the unsaved loving darkness. Now, when you read that verse, you really don't think the world has chosen darkness and therefore loves it. Because it says the world hates the light. And hate and love there are opposites. Hate is a very powerful emotion that enslaves the will. Love is a very powerful emotion that enslaves the will. So let's see, and I'm going to give you a sort of a language lecture. My PhD is in Hebrew Old Testament. I love languages, and so I'm going to talk about languages. And sometimes some folks will find it boring. I'm convinced you won't find it boring, but some folks will find it boring. I'm quite impressed with your response. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I've been in China too long. <laughs> but now I've forgotten where I'm at. <laughs> Let's go over here. <laughs> Language, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's also part of Gail's role, too, to tell me what I just forgot. <laughs> language. So if you're not into language Bible studies, that's all right. Just watch me and see the enjoyment on my face as I talk about it and enjoy the fact that I'm enjoying myself boring you. <laughs> Over here, this is a quote from the Song of Solomon. And let me give you a language lesson. The Hebrew word for romantic love is ahava. Let's all say it. Ahava. Now, doesn't that sound cool? I, I mean, I just feel like calling up my wife every, set, every time I say that word. Ahava. Very romantic. And that's the Hebrew word for romantic love. That's the word that's used of Jacob's love for Rachel, where he worked 14 years and it seemed like a moment because of his ahava for the woman. Just the delighted passion he has. And then in the Song of Solomon, it talks about the love of the young man for the Shunammite, the woman, the love that he has. And he says this about the King, King Solomon. He says about King Solomon, there are 60 queens. This is early in Solomon's career. It got a lot higher later. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number that Solomon has. My dove, my perfect one, he's talking about the woman, is one. One. 
She is her mother's only one, only child. She is the pure daughter of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, and they praised her. What's happening there? There's this crowd of women who are involved with Solomon, and if you do the math, it means he can see one of those women about two hours every other month. I mean, a real depth of relationship there. And the queens and the concubines and the maidens turn to this one poor woman. She's not rich. And they say, you're blessed. Because you're one. And that one man loves you, has ahava for you. And it's emphasizing the reality that we don't love generically. We love particularly. That is, we love the individual beauty of the individual person. Then the song goes on. In the last chapter, chapter 8, the woman says to the man, Set me like a seal on your heart. I want to know that you are my possession and I am yours. Like a seal on your arm. For Ahava is strong as death. Passion as relentless as Sheol. Hell. That's the Hebrew word for hell. The flash of it is a flash of fire. A flame of Yahweh himself. Talking about love, ahava. Love, no flood can quench, no torrents drown. Were a man to offer all his family wealth to buy love, contempt is all he would gain. Because instinctively we know you can't buy the delighted passion of one human being for another human being. And that's ahava. And when you sense that someone has a delighted passion for you, if you really sense it, you feel safe. You feel safe. And that's what the woman is talking about. Put a seal on your arm and on your heart because you make me feel safe. Now here's the important thing. All of the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek before the New Testament was written. Every place that Ahava occurred, the translators put in Agape. Meaning their understanding is that Agape is the passionate delight of the Old Testament and that it is not merely a perspective and an act of the will. It is a delight in persons. It is criminally, criminally sad that the world thinks God is up in heaven in an outrage over humanity. 
He loves humanity. And he is profoundly saddened by what we do to each other. And he sees through the fog of this world and he sees us and he sees every individual human being and he finds pleasure. Because any good physician can tell the difference between the disease and the person. And he sees the person. So going over to 1 John. By this, the delighted passion, and one of the realities of the evangelical church and the world today, words don't mean a thing. You use the word love, and oh my goodness, it is a mess as to what the world understands by love and by what the church presents as love. But when you enter into the New Testament and Old Testament, the emphasis is on a delighted passion. The two places where you can find a correct understanding of love is country western music, <laughs> which I really don't like at all. <laughs> My idea of heaven being turned into something I don't want is if there is a country western vocal quartet before the throne. <laughs> it's got to be Handel and classical music, folks. Otherwise, I'm confused. But anyway, in country western music, they got it. Love is a passion. I, th I think the song goes, it's a flame. Just like the song of Solomon. The passionate, inflamed delight of God was manifested in us. That God, so it's the Father, has sent his only begotten Son into the world. So that we might live through him, through the instrumentality of the Son. In this is delighted passion. Not that we had a delighted passion for God, we hated him. Because we blamed him for everything. But that he had a delighted passion for us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or that golden altar before the throne of God where the blood of the lamb is sprinkled. That pronounces peace between humanity and God. Propitiation provides peace. God is at peace. The only issue that exists is the issue of what do we do with the Son of God who died for us. That is the only issue this world needs to answer. It's not whether you're involved in a gay marriage or not. It's not whether you want a sex change or not. Now, all of that stuff, I think, is a bit strange. But... That's not the issue. The issue is, what do you do with the Son of God who died for us? Ultimately, that determines everything. Beloved, if God had such a delight for us, we ought also to delight in one another. 
I was talking to a pastor in California, and he was saying, we have this well-organized church. We do everything right. Large church. We have a lot of money. And he said, there's this other church. They're disorganized, they're sloppy, they're kind of broke, and they're growing like crazy. And he said, when you go there, you get the sense of being liked and enjoyed. You come to our church, and you admire how well we run. <laughs> and then he, he, he said the strangest thing. He said, I don't understand why they're growing. And he was an intelligent guy. He just answered his own question. And then he said, oh, Dr. Ekman, could you tell me why they're growing? <laughs> they're growing because people like to be liked. Amen. It's the simplest motivator that exists. People like to be liked. And that's the message of the gospel. God likes people. Now, quite frankly... We don't like all that many people because we don't see through the darkness that they live within to see them. But God sees that. And if we spend enough time getting to know people, we will see beauty in everyone we meet, even when it's distorted. No one has beheld God at any time. God the Father. We've certainly, the earth has seen the Son, but not God the Father. If we have a delighted passion, one for another, God is abiding or remaining. I would, if I gave an expanded translation, God is abiding in a healthy relationship to us. If we have simple affection, one for another, it is blatantly obvious that we're abiding in a relationship to God. Because a relationship to the Father frees us up to be at peace so that we can see the world correctly. And we can see people correctly. And we can see the tragedy of life correctly. And we can see beyond the tragedy of life. We can see the beauty of the characters in the tragedy who are self-destructive. And recognize there is so much worth there that it's reasonable that the Son of God should die for them. Even though the beauty is hidden, it is reasonable from the Father's perspective that the Son should die for every human being that has ever existed. God abides in us and his love is perfected or comes to a completion in us. The theory behind the Trinity is that if we live our lives in the midst of the Trinitarian relationships, we will experience so much affection and delight from the Father and the Son that as we step into the world, there'll be a natural overflow. One of the fascinating things about Jesus Christ, he did not have a witnessing program. He just witnessed the hearts of human beings and responded to them. He saw them as people. And he met them where they are. And all of his conversations were unique. Unique to the person he's talking to. Because he saw correctly who they were. 
And we have come to experience, the word for know in the English text is experience, and have believed the love which God has for us. One of the things that I think is the hardest thing about being a pastor, and I hope the other pastors will agree with this, the hardest job that a pastor has is convincing believers that God loves them. Because of the fall, because of the culture, and often because of family background, people walk around in self-hate. They become believers and they bring their self-hate into their Christianity. It takes time to get rid of self-hate. And the job of a pastor is actually astonishingly simple in some ways. We have to convince the sheep of the good shepherd that the good shepherd loves them and the father of the good shepherd has a passionate delight for them. And it's not easy work. Not when people are blinded by the fall, by the culture and oftentimes by their very own family. And so, we have come to experience and have believed. And in the Greek text is, we've believed it in the past. We believe it now. The love which God has for us. And it's delighted passion. It's one thing to say. God loves me. And we say it like we're watching a boring black and white movie. It's a whole nother thing to say. I have a father in heaven who actually likes me. And it is an astonishing thought and feeling to be liked by that father. He finds delight in you. Vastly more delight in you than you'll ever find in yourself. Because if you're a normal human being, you're always thinking about, only if God made me different than I am. But God delights in exactly who you are. And... And the purpose of Christianity is to introduce you to yourself. The person that the Father loves. God is love. Again, this said two times. God the Father as to quality. The one thing you can be certain about him is that he is a passionate delight in others. The other two members of the Trinity and the other persons who exist. The one who abides, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in a healthy relationship, in relationship to God, and God abides in him. Now what does love do? When a person truly feels love, what do they feel? They feel safe. And that's critical. If you have a sense of being enjoyed by someone, 
What that should bring you is a sense of security. I matter to that other person. I can tell because of the delight in their eyes, the smile that they have, and the affection that I feel. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Now, the word confidence literally means free and easy speaking as to a friend. That's confidence. Free and easy speaking as to a friend. We have confidence in the day of judgment. You say the day of judgment. John is doing this deliberately. He says there's a judgment seat of Christ for believers where our work for God is evaluated. And John is saying that if you're properly experiencing God's delighted passion for you, when you face Christ's evaluation, you will be sensing that you are meeting your best friend. And you'll feel safe. And when he says to you, you know, you goofed that up, you did that wrong, this is great, that stinks, you'll look at him and say, you're absolutely right. I feel safe. You're telling me the truth, I can tell you the truth back because I feel safe. Yes, I goofed that up, I was lazy there. And over here I did something well. And then the son will say to you and the father will say to you, and that's what we're going to keep. This, we're going to burn it up. So there's no evidence against you. This, we're going to keep. And we're going to give you a reward for that which we can keep. And you can keep the reward throughout eternity because we are grateful to you for what you have done for us. The junk is gone and we've had an honest conversation about it. Come on into heaven and enjoy yourself. That we may have confidence because with a sense of delighted passion, you feel safe. If somebody said to you, I've chosen to love you, I would feel very nervous. <laughs> he may unchoose you tomorrow. But if he says to you, I enjoy who you are and you can see it, that sense of security begins to grow. And the beauty of a healthy family background is people from healthy family backgrounds carry around within their hearts a sense of security because they have the sense of being a well-loved child. That's a rare gift. Very few people have received that gift. But when somebody has been a well-loved child, it oozes out of them. And they feel safe about who they are. that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, in the context it's referring to Christ, so also are we in this world. Here's the truth we often forget. That when you became a believer, you were so unified with Christ that the Father finds you indivisible with him. Remember that part about in the Pledge of Allegiance, indivisible? 
Well, we've become very divisible. <laughs> but with Christ, we're indivisible. We are unified with him and never forget that when you're praying to the Father, the Father is responding to you in your unity with Christ. Your standing before God is not based on your last three sins. It is based on your union with Him. So the Father, when He's responding to you, is also responding to His own Son. And when you remember that in prayer, that will give you the freedom and the liberty and the self-respect to tell Him the truth. And as you tell Him the truth, your heart will change. You hide, nothing changes. But when you have confidence to tell Him the truth, everything changes. Because the Spirit of God helps those who walk in the light. And walking in the light simply means to be open and honest with a good Father in heaven. So also are we in this world. We can have confidence because the Father out of delight has placed us in the Christ. There is a common mistake, and I made this mistake when I first became a believer. I thought the only reason God loves me is because I'm in Christ. I didn't know Ephesians 2 yet, that out of love he placed me out in Christ. Out of his great love wherewith he loved us. He made us alive together with Christ. That love preceded our union with Christ. And our union with Christ was given as a gift of love, delighted passion to us. There is no fear in a sense of delighted passion. Notice the word fear. And notice the word love. They're given as opposites. Because in the New Testament and Old Testament understanding of love, there's always confidence. Because they're viewing love as an emotion. The fruit of the Spirit is profoundly emotional. It's the characteristics of God being poured into our hearts which are profoundly emotional. There is no fear in love. So in the context, if fear is an emotion, love has to be an emotion because it nullifies that emotion of fear. There is no fear in love. But a mature, delighted passion casts out fear. As we mature in the sense of being loved by the Father, when fear enters our heart, we can grab it by the shirt, take it to the door of our heart, and throw it out now, it doesn't mean you won't become afraid every once in a while. But out of a mature love, you can grab that fear and toss it out because you'll remind yourself of the depth of affection that exists in Christ Jesus. Why does fear make us nervous? Because fear involves punishment. The fearful person always is expecting to get hit. And the one who fears is not perfected or matured. Perfected means you come to the end of the process. The process has worked and you've come to the end. It's translated perfected, which is a little bit deceiving because it's not talking about human perfection. It's talking about a process of maturity that has come to its completion. And when we're mature, we're just confident in the affection of the Father for us. And it gives a freedom in life that grants courage in the face of adversity because we know 
Our hearts are not dependent on circumstances. They're dependent on the affection of a good father in heaven. And the one who fears is not matured or perfected in love. We love because he first had a delighted passion for us. We have a delighted passion for him because he had a delighted passion for us. We're melted into true humanity where spontaneously we respond with grateful hearts. So in the Song of Solomon and in 1 John 4, what we are told is we are individually known, we are enjoyed, and critically important, we are safe. You are individually known, enjoyed, accepted, and safe. And this God who loves us inhabits our hearts. He feels and accepts our emotions, and he sympathizes. As James 5.11 says, the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. This is the astounding thing about God. He exists within us if we're believers. He feels all of our emotions and he doesn't thump us. He doesn't hit us. He feels them. He feels what we're feeling. That's called compassion. He feels what you're feeling and he has sympathy for you. Love brings compassion. And when you sense that the God of heaven and earth actually has compassion on you, you will have compassion on yourself. And the self-hate will stop. The self-hate that is straight from Satan who wishes you were dead. Because you are a reminder to him of how richly God can love someone. In finding you, referring to the Father, referring to the Son, I have found myself. It's the oddest thing to say to you. It's an odd thing for me to say. I've actually learned to enjoy the person that I am. That's very odd to say it. Because I grew up hating the person I am because I had a sense that I was hated by my own father. The hatred of indifference. The hatred of indifference. When you know a primary person in your life is indifferent to you, the child can only conclude, I am not worth knowing. I mean, that's the logical conclusion. If a primary reality, a person called a father or a mother or both, ignores who you are, or even worse, hurts you. Your only conclusion can be, I'm not worth knowing. And then you discover Jesus Christ and God as a Father, and you have the amazing thought, God thinks I'm worth knowing. I'm not even sure I'm convinced I'm worth knowing. And yet he thinks you're worth knowing. 
So much so, he had a son die for you. You're worth knowing. There is more to you than you will ever imagine. Because you're made in the image of God and you're a unique person unto yourself and there'll never be another you in the whole history of this universe. You are worth knowing. In finding you, I have found myself. Let's take a moment for a spiritual transaction because we've heard a lot of wonderful truth. I think some of the most important truth that the church needs to hear in this hour. How many of you would be honest enough with me and say, I have at some time in my life hated myself? This is ubiquitous. This is, this is a problem. Did you hear that the Lord is crazy about us? Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. I want us to stand together because it's easier to do a spiritual transaction sometimes when we stand up. But I want to lead us in a prayer. And what I felt the Lord say is, we need to ask forgiveness for rejecting the one that he loves, and that's us. Because at times, he has been knocking on the door, telling us about his love, and we've pushed him away. He loves us. He's not angry at us. But we need to clear the way, and we need to open our hearts, and we need to receive this love. I think we need to have this transaction where we're saying, Lord, we hear what you're saying, and we receive it. Can I lead you in a prayer? Would you repeat after me? And we're just going to do this prayer together and say it loud like you mean it from your heart, okay? Heavenly Father, Father, we come in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ. And we are so excited excited to hear about your love for us. us. You have revealed something wonderful to us today. today. Father, forgive us. For rejecting your love at times. But also we have rejected ourselves. And Lord, we understand that that is a sin. We are made in your image. You consider us worthy through Christ. And your love is infinitely greater than anything we can imagine. We say now, Lord, we we receive this love, love. and we thank you for what you did through Jesus. Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Let me pray for all of us right now. Hallelujah. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we just want to take a moment, and I feel like the prayer of Paul has been answered today, that we would understand how high and deep, how long and how wide your love is for us. But Lord, we're on a journey. We're just seeing a little bit more. There's more that you want us to see. So God, what you have done here today, let this be a marker moment, and that's why we're doing this spiritual transaction. I just pray that you would seal these words in our heart and let them be building blocks to take us deeper or higher, so to speak, in, in you and the understanding of your love. We thank you so much for your goodness, Lord. And thank you for Dr. Ekman, Lord, and what he's brought to us today. I, I feel like uh, the people in, I think it was Athens, where they said, we need to hear more of that guy, Paul. We need to hear more of Dr. Ekman. So thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. 
So, Dr. Ekman, I have a, I have a question. I'll start us off. Okay. I have that privilege since I've got the mic, and then we'll ask <laughs> others if they have a question. I believe it's in your book, uh, Becoming Who God Intended, that you tell the story of a man who's caught in pornography. Mm-hmm. And the, what you ended with in this last session about coming into the light mm-hmm. and being unafraid to, to face that and understand that you can come into the light. Would you explain the, the relationship between coming into the light and understanding this love and freedom that we can walk in in Christ? It is a powerful thing <clears throat> to realize that who you are is more important to God than what you do. It's an incredibly powerful thing. The Asian culture believes that who you are is what you do. And unfortunately, that's also part of American culture, that who you are is what you do. But American culture, in some ways, is worse. Because Western culture says, and Gail is holding a book that deals particularly with addiction called The Struggle for the Heart. And that's available on the book table that particularly addresses addiction. And also in the head-to-heart discipleship process, it's there. What happens in addiction is that people over-focus on what they're doing wrong or what they're enslaved to. They become their addiction. And addiction is truly addiction when that is your identity. Because if that's all you are, you're going to die a slave. But the point of release is when the heart truly concludes, I'm more than what I do wrong. And frankly, I'm more than what I do right. Because it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's not right. It sounds almost amoral to say this. But it's not what you've done right. It's not what you've done wrong that matters in this thing. What matters is who you are in the eyes of a father in heaven. So the liberating point in addiction is when a person can step out of the identity of an addict into the identity of a person who's got a huge problem. Meaning there's liberation if I say to myself, I'm a person with a huge problem. But if I say to myself, all I am is my addiction, I'm doomed. And the, the, the really cool thing about Christianity is that properly understood, it has the psychological impact of a Mack truck hitting a squirrel in the road, which is kind of an ugly picture if you think about it. <laughs> But it's got power. It's got tremendous psychological power because every psychological issue works its way back to a spiritual issue, ultimately. And in Christian spirituality, who you are 
is what matters to God. And liberation begins when you discover how much you matter to God. Now, as we bring, and that gives us the freedom to go for help. What sends a person to hell is not their sin. It's their refusal to be helped. That, that's a huge distinction. It's not your sin. And, and again, this is where, where the, the church can drive you crazy. Where in our communication, we'll tell people, it's your sin, it's your sin, you're no good. If you only voted the right way, you'd be virtuous. You know, that, that kind of nonsense, whatever the right way is. But in true reality, the real problem is not going for help. The drowning person who doesn't yell for help is a person who, in a sense, deserves to drown. Especially when there's help immediately available. So when we realize we're valued, then the process of help begins. Slow but sure. And depending on the severity of the addiction is the severity of the amount of energy and effort that will have to go into the liberation. But the liberation starts when I recognize I am not my addiction. My addiction is the problem. But I am a person who is loved by a good God in heaven. Thank you very much. Excellent. So we need to come out of the dark and move into the light. Who's, who's got a question uh, this morning? Anybody? Question? Clarification over here? Pastor Jeff will come with a mic. Dr. Ekman, I've really enjoyed this time with you. And your visuals in your um, message today, are they in any of your books? So, because they were phenomenal, because it's so simple and it's easy to relate to others as well as to understand for ourselves that, you know, the, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we all believe in it, but do we understand the, the depth of what yeah. it means. Is there any books that you have that depict that, what you shared today? Well, there's two places that you can go. One is to YouTube, where we have a channel on YouTube, where you, you can watch the visuals, so to speak. And then there's also a channel on Vimeo. And on Vimeo, the cool thing about Vimeo is on an iPhone, smartphone, iPad, computer, or whatever, you can get those lectures. And that's a great place to get those visuals. Because the PowerPoint would be there, the talking head myself will be there. <laughs> and that would be the source. Now, in our books, we'll have diagrams and all of that. But the real fun thing is when you combine the visual with the speaker. And thank you. The hardest work that there is uh, is actually coming up with a simple illustration. That's hard work. Making it complicated is easy. 
Dr. Eckerman, Pastor Jimmy Rogers from Akron, Ohio, Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church. We are so blessed to have been sitting, sitting under your tutelage today. Just want to say thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you. Amen. Missionary Baptist. Very cool. <laughs> yes, good morning, Dr. Eckman. Thank you for your message. What's your name? My name is Joyce. Okay. And um, one of the things that I have struggled with most of my adult life is organized religion as a whole. Really? And... Um, probably the biggest, well, no, and the biggest, the biggest part of that being, you know, you've got all these different groups and all these different, you know, whatever you want to classify it as, and they're all right and everybody else is wrong and they're all, you know, everybody else is misled and we have the only answer and all that. What is your vision, um, having coming back to the church after many years away and just doing my own private worship? Um, and I have found the house of the Lord. Thank you, Bishop. Um, it seems as though, and, and I'm, I've seen it here too with a little bit of uh, ministry that we had before you um, took the stage. There seems to be more of a cohesiveness as far as they're getting away from some of that. What, what are your feelings on that? Or do we still have to be careful with those groups that say, you're wrong, you're misinterpreting, I'm right, you got to follow me, when the basic bottom line of all of it is these are just human beings ministering to human beings. And they have their, you know, foibles and failures and all of that just as much as they have their good points. They have their self-hate. So how do we get around that? Oh, oh let me just throw this in. They, they're working out of self-hate. When you work out of self-hate, you've got to get people to agree with you. So your self-hate goes down. If I hate myself, I've got to convince you that I'm right, so my level of hate goes down. The happy heart says, nobody needs to agree with me. I'm happy. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's the greatest miracle there is, is a happy heart. So after saying all of that, the church program, the intended church program of the New Testament is simply me is abiding in the Trinitarian relationships. That's the church program. Out of that flows loving activity. But the church program is knowing God as a father and being real with him. Out of our wondrous identity with Christ that means that we can look at ourselves without being ashamed because we're joined with him. And we can have our heart changed as we share our lives with the Father. The Holy Spirit will share God the Father's help with us. That's the church program. When we make it more complicated than that, it gets ugly. Because the most important reality in human history is that God became one of us to die for the mess we created. That's right. And that's what the world needs. It's a really incredibly simple thing with huge implications. But when people are uncomfortable with themselves, they have to convince others to agree with them. 
The remarkable thing about Jesus Christ is, and I find this remarkable, because all of us as adults have experienced somebody disliking us or hating us or slighting us or insulting us. All of us have experienced that. But the remarkable thing about Jesus Christ is he just took it in stride. He was at peace. He did not get himself twisted around the axle of others, other people's hatred of him. He was at peace, which made him the most powerful man on earth. So after saying all of that, it's a trap and a snare to get pulled into this stuff. We have a principle, which is, if anybody wants our help, we help. So we've ended up in the odd spot of being approved by the Communist Party in Beijing to teach in their universities. We've ended up in the odd spot of being invited by the leaders of the Catholic Church in China to teach at the largest training center in China for Catholic priests, nuns, and workers. And, and, and we have a real simple strategy, which is, if we can help, we'll help. And if, and, and if you don't want our help, that's fine too, because other people want our help. And... This brother and many of you in the room are the same way. If we can help, we'll help. If you don't want our help, tell us so we don't waste our energy. But we'll help those who need help. But we have to be content with the Father's love, our identity in Christ, and the ability of the Spirit of God to change our own heart and not get sucked into the nonsense the world gets sucked into. Does that make sense? Thank you. Over. Hi, my name's Janice. Janice. I'd love to pursue the Song of Solomon one step further. And I feel like in um, the heart of many here today, it would be really nice if you would just um, maybe go over one more time that the love of God surpasses and is more meaningful than even that of our spouses and our any relationships we may be in. And I just feel like that would be really great to have you just touch on that one more time. Sure, sure. My wife and I had an argument early on in marriage, and it was the best argument we ever had. And, and we, we don't argue all that much. And uh, we have this strategy, which is when we get irritated with one another, we take a nap. <laughs> No. <laughs> you can either pay 120 bucks or you can take a nap. Take your choice. Either way, you'll, you'll be improved. But <laughs> my wife, Carol, early on in her marriage said something very profound to me. She said, I have concluded you cannot make me happy. 
And um, I fired back, I have concluded the same thing about you. <laughs> now, actually, that, that's a profound insight to have, which is I can't make my spouse the Holy Spirit. That's called codependency. If I turn to my spouse and say to my spouse, you make me happy, that's a fool's errand. Uh, that really is. Because it's just up and down like the stock market. Carol and I drove across the country. At 5 o'clock, she was nervous and I was irritable. Eight hours of driving. It's just a stock market. Human relationships are, are up and down. But the beauty of it is, is that as we, through faith, and we have to trust, and all we need is faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. We don't need all that much. You don't have to turn yourself into something you're not. You just need a little bit of faith. And we can discover God's affection for us as long as we don't make it an act of his will. And that's really important. Because when you look at a baby... You don't say to yourself, I choose to like this baby. You just like this baby. That's the way reality works. It says that somewhere in a country western song. <laughs> of which I do not know, but I'm sure there's one there. And when we begin to experience that, we develop compassion for the spouse. We also develop compassion for ourselves. Not self-pity, but self-understanding. Where we realize that we're weak people and we're married to, weak, to a weak person. And out of that comes liberation. Now, in that argument I had with Carol, she said to me, well, I guess I'll have to find my happiness in God. And I said to her, good! <laughs> because it meant I was off the hook. <laughs> And, and not in an unhealthy way. It's just that if I make her the Holy Spirit, that's a life of disappointment. If she makes me the Holy Spirit, that's a life of double disappointment. Would that make sense? Yeah. When the Bible talks about the reason why Song of Solomon chapter 8 is so important, it says that Ahava which is translated as agape, is the very flame of Yahweh. Meaning it is the fire within the heart of God. And that's what he has for us. It's a flame. It's not a mere I choose. The will follows the delight. Delight does not follow the will. Otherwise, enjoy that wall choose to enjoy that wall. Try very hard. It won't work. First John talks about that if we're perfected in love, fear would leave. I struggle on a regular basis with fear and anxiety, so that means I'm not perfected in love, right? If I were perfected in love, then the fear would leave. Can you comment on that, please? Sure, sure. 
Uh, one of the things that's found in the book, uh, Becoming Who God Intended, and that is in all of our books, is that all of us have pictures of reality in our heart already. We look, you wear glasses. I used to wear glasses. Then I had the joy of getting cataracts, so I don't need glasses. <laughs> one of the benefits. But you put on a pair of glasses all through life, and you see life through that pair of glasses, through images. Jesus did the most interesting thing. He said three times to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount and to the listeners, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. And probably most of the listeners felt, well, you're making me anxious by telling me not to be. <laughs> I'm becoming more nervous. You've said it three times in seven verses. I'm twitching now. But, but what he said was, don't be anxious. And then he started painting a picture. He said, consider the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Take a look at them. God takes care of them, and they neither sow nor reap. They don't plant. They don't harvest. And God takes care of them. Are you, more, are you not more valuable than they? And what he does is absolutely brilliant because he's, he's assuming that we live in our world of pictures and that affects how we see everything. So the, the real struggle is changing the pictures. Because we change the pictures and the anxiety goes away. And in the passage, he mentioned, stop being anxious. Don't be continually anxious. Stop being anxious right now. And then he gave three pictures. The lilies of the field, the birds of the air, and the lilies of the field are dressed more beautifully than Solomon himself. A mere lily gets better care than Solomon. And you are more important than those birds and those lilies. Meaning his care is superb. But what we do to ourselves, because we have a false picture of the world, we look through that lens, and then when we're told, don't be anxious, we say to ourselves, God, you don't see the world the way I see it. Have you listened to CNN and Fox lately? <laughs> Only an insane person wouldn't be anxious after watching that stuff. Well, it's the lens you look through. Change the lens and the emotions change. So after saying all of that, the first part is we have to recognize that we've already got a set of pictures we bought into and we hardly notice them. We've inherited them from the fall, from our cultural background, and often from our family background. And to change those pictures, we've got to become aware of them. And as it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, we, we have got to deal with the vain traditions we've received from our father. It's literally from our father that we've received from our dad. We've got to be redeemed, rescued from those things, those vain traditions, those false pictures. Well, we have to recognize that they're there because we already have a faith commitment to them. Whether we realize it or not, we already have a faith commitment. So we've got to pull our faith out of that and find the new picture. That's within Scripture, because the Scripture always uses picture language because the quickest way to the emotions is the imagination. 
And that's what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. He has 16 short, powerful pictures, and he even ends up with the picture with the houses built on the foundations. So what I would suggest is find the pictures and put a new picture on top of that old picture. God's way of seeing things. And then find faith as little as a mustard seed. What he said to his disciples, O ye of little faith. He, he dealt with the issue of faith. Because the one thing that the Spirit of God will not bless is suspicion of God. Believers will go for help and they'll be suspicious of God and the Holy Spirit just sits there like the Maytag repairman. And, and says, I'm not going to make a move until you trust a little bit because you're insulting the Father, you're insulting the Son, and I don't bless that kind of thing. So we've got to find that little bit of faith and make that faith choice. And if you have my kind of family background, trust is a hard deal. But I find to my immense surprise that when I exercise a little bit of trust, God blesses. And frankly, I'm always surprised. I'm always surprised because I come out of a family that betrays each other. So I'm always surprised. So I, I would suspect it's those pictures. And I think if we had a talk for about an hour or two, we could find out what those pictures were. It actually, it wouldn't be an hour or two. It might be 10 minutes what those pictures are. It looks like it's 12 o'clock. Yes, we're, we're there. And we could probably go on for hours. Thank you so much for oh, all you shared with us. It's awesome. Yes. Praise Thank God. You. Thank you.